1: I grew up in a very religious home, so I felt very close to the material when it came time to get ready for the role. My grandfather was our pastor, my mother was the choir director, my dad taught Sunday school and played the drums. Did
2: they all watch the, watch the show? They all
1: watched it. A lot of them came to New York, my mother came. My mom was like, talking like she was at church, She's like, hallelujah, <laughs> amen. <laughs>
3: Hello, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here as usual with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson.
0: Hi, Katie.
3: And what you just heard at the top of the episode is what I wish was the new fifth member of our show, but uh, is a one-time appearance by one John Legend who came into the studio and talked to Mike about his performance on Jesus Christ Superstar Live and about his childhood growing up in the church and about how he and Chrissy Teigen have playdates with other famous people's kids. So that is a conversation to look forward to in the second half of this show. And we'll talk to Mike a little bit about it. And we
2: did talk about Kanye, but only when the audio wasn't rolling and before Kanye did his like mental um, breakdown or whatever that was, uh, alleged uh, mental breakdown. But he was telling us that Jay-Z is a better rapper and Kanye is the is the actual all-around musical genius. But then I was arguing that Kanye had actually become even the better rapper following Watch the Throne. We had this, this was like, I was in my happy place in the elevator following. I just want you guys to know this. Anyway, that's, you won't hear any of that, but we did discuss Kanye, but not John Legend's uh, nice ways of trying to coax Kanye back into the fold of not being MAGA. But he did talk about his politics as well, and so I think there's some context for that. Anyway, that's enough about Kanye.
3: Yeah, so so we'll get to John Legend in the first half, but uh, we wanted to catch up a little bit first with, uh, you know, it's still a weird time for new releases. It's mostly the Avengers Infinity War style of movies coming out less of uh, Oscar buzzy stuff but I'm really intrigued by the release this week of Tully which is the reunion between Jason Reitman and Diablo Cody who really just had such an amazing Oscar season with Juno over 10 years ago which is crazy Um, and it is from what I can tell a pretty personal script written by Diablo Cody about being a new mother and uh, Richard you apparently love being terrorized by newborns so much you saw this movie twice.
4: I saw it twice I saw it first at Sundance uh, back in January it was like the secret screening so it's Screened the Thursday of the second week, which meant a lot of people were gone. I happened to still be there, uh, and I liked it. It was good. Uh, you know, it's it's. I, I really liked Young Adult, which was Charlie Theron, Jason Reitman, and Diablo Cody uh, seven years ago, uh, and so I was excited to see what they did next. Uh, and um, you know, I'm not a parent, uh, but uh, there's a lot in the movie to relate to. But anyway, so I, months later, I had to review it for for the site and. I was like, well, I can't really go based on memory from January, so I should see it again. And uh, on second time, I like loved it. Like I was really like moved by it, and um, you know, all the more sort of impressed with Diablo Cody's writing. I think it's her sort of more most like insightful script. I mean, you know, because she's writing about personal experience. Um, it's about. Uh, the mother of two kids with one another baby on the way and Diablo Cody has multiple children and anyway I really liked it is there a thread between Charlize's character here and the character she played in young adult or any Juno young adult characters I kind of tried to make that thread in my review like it just in a sort of thematic like okay so we started with you know well yeah, it's Juno but also with young adult where Charlize is kind of like in Arrested Development and then this movie is about her Dealing with, you know, the stresses of child rearing, but also looking back at her youth and or her, when she was in her 20s or whatever and sort of mourning that in a way. So I think there is a thematic, you know, we could probably trace Diablo Cody's kind of growth trajectory through these movies I think a little bit maybe we're reading yeah. too much into it but like I, I chose to do that yeah
0: yeah I just think it's interesting because you know we talk all the time about how we want more women creatives to have their voices in storytelling and I really feel like as that is increasingly happening um, in Hollywood both in TV and film we're seeing these other dimensionalities of motherhood that feels sort of revolutionary but has always been true I think for women uh, who talk about it they just don't have movies and TV shows made about it so you know thinking about like Big Little Lies, where you have, you know, Nicole Kidman's character saying like, what if motherhood isn't enough for me? Or The Letdown, which is this great new Netflix series, this Australian series that Netflix picked up and distributed that's about sort of like, how really hard and what a tremendous kind of letdown early parenthood can be for some women. And so this exploration of motherhood through these various projects, and I didn't mean to like get a too far off diablo cody but she's talked about her own personal experience and form this movie i think really is i think shocking to some people because they're just so used to thinking of like motherhood as this blessing and and we're getting this other dimension to it that doesn't negate the first thing but just adds a, a different angle
3: yeah it does feel like uh so many of these stories have been going on television like I, i've had other friends of mine recommend the letdown and um you've got things like catastrophe which is like showing people having a like Children And then it feels like a movie like Tully, like the fact that not only is it, you know, it's these people who have made these successful films, so they should continue making films, but it's not necessarily being positioned as an Oscar play, but it's a movie for grownups coming out in May. Like those things rarely happen anymore. It feels weirdly a little miraculous that it exists at all.
4: It is. I don't really know the business well enough to really assess why it's coming out in May, a week after the Avengers. But I don't know. Part of me wishes that they'd held it off for maybe later in the summer, like an August kind of indie, which tend to kind of get a little more attention because there's less to compete with. I mean, the fall is always so busy. But I mean, Charlize Theron is really, really good in the movie, just as she was good in Young Adult. Uh, and, And that performance was sort of overlooked. And I feel like And that was a December release. And so, I don't know. I'm worried that this one will not get the due that it deserves. You know, there's one aspect of the movie, I'm not going to say what it is, that has been kind of giving people... It's been cause for debate. And so maybe that's why they, they didn't feel like it was a home run. But, yeah, also the title. I mean, it's, you know, the title makes sense in the context the of the movie. title is
2: not amazing. It's kind of yeah. reminds me of Sully. It feels like yeah. the s- sequel to that's Sully. That's exactly what I was thinking. If you go to the movies right now, it fills a hole, right? Yeah. You could go see Infinity War. You could catch the tail end of Black Panther. You could watch Blockers. You could watch uh, A Quiet Place. There's no, like, other art movie that's out. Or whatever, not art movie, but, like, adult comedy. right. right. Not an well, adult. That's more that accessible gross. than yeah. like the writer or something, right? Yeah, right? Right? Yeah. yeah. This one will actually play maybe at your AMC. Yes. Versus exactly. like you have to go to the film forum or
4: something. Yeah. It's a big like action movie star slash Oscar winning movie star, and you know I guess Mackenzie Davis probably has something of a following. She plays the titular Tully, um, is this kind of you know Mary Poppins esque nanny that that night, night nurse rather, who kind of comes and helps save Charlie's Charlie's Theron's life.
2: Maybe the idea is you take your kids and you put them in Infinity War. Or A Quiet Place. Yeah. And then you go see Tully. And
4: you go. And then pick you them never pick them
0: back up because <laughs> yeah, Tully you never want to see them again. <laughs> and then Mackenzie Davis picks them up for you. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. Here's my weird thing with the title Tully. There's a 2000 film named Tully starring Julianne Nicholson. That's like how I first found out about the actress Julianne Nicholson. And I think only like Julianne Nicholson's mom and I remember that film but I was like I know that's 18 years ago but it felt too soon and I was like we just had a movie that no one except myself saw called Tully.
4: Jordan Hoffman was t- w- tweeted something about that <laughs> Joanna too so you're not alone.
0: Yes! There are you two of Jordan us. Hoffman. I mean that's
4: a really weird title to have repeat twice within 20 years. Right? That Specifically you know but yeah I don't know what you, what you would call the movie but I don't that title's not doing it any favors mother <laughs> sorry <laughs> exclamation mark
3: you guys mention A Quiet Place is kind of uh, you know something you take the kids to but that does feel like a kind of more adult skewing movie at least more than like a Marvel movie so it does feel like we've had kind of a good year for movies that do aim toward more than just teenagers so I don't know maybe there's potential for Tully to kind of take off in that way I was thinking about like the Grand Budapest Hotel which opened in the spring and then became an Oscar player partly because people just kept going back and back to see it maybe there's some genius at work that we're not giving enough credit for
2: and blockers you will not hate yourself if you're over 18 watching blockers at all <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah should nope. that
3: just be our weekly update is like here are the movies that are out that you won't hate yourself yeah, yeah, yeah. i love blockers go see it So we're going to share Mike's conversation with John Legend, as as promised. And uh, before we get into it, we kind of wanted to... So we're getting into May. We're getting into what we're considering an Emmys for your consideration season. The Emmy nominations come out in early July, and voting starts in June. So this is the time of year when a lot of people are going out and doing interviews with people like us and trying to kind of get attention for the work they did on television. And God knows it's not easy, because there's a lot of television, and I don't envy any of their work. Um, And the Jesus Christ Superstar situation is particularly interesting, because it's kind of in a category all to itself. Like Joanna, can you explain a little bit about why it's in such a weird spot, even when you've got this huge star turn from John Legend to get Emmy's attention?
0: The live musicals usually wind up in the variety category, which makes a lot of sense that that's where they would be. But the question mark around this particular one is... Is there a category we can put John Legend's performances? Because there isn't a, like, a performance category that goes with the variety category. And so someone on Gold Derby was suggesting maybe he would be in the miniseries movie category or something like that. But really right now, he's a performer without a without a country, without a category. So, <laughs> so the question is, is he going to get nominated in an unprecedented category and forever change the rules of where we nominate these live musical performers? Or are we just going to acknowledge that while this was an incredible show? Show, there isn't like exactly a place to put John Legend come Emmy time other than producer for this incredible show.
2: Basically, we need him to be the
4: messiah. Sorry. Of the live action musical, <laughs> he's gonna wander in the desert,
0: or are and we then... just
3: gonna nail him to a cross? <laughs> oh my <I> God! Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. There's the trouble with this too, because it's him, and then also Brandon Victor Dixon, who plays Judas, which is the the kind of the flashier t- traditional role in Jesus Christ Superstar, who both gave like really remarkable performances, I think. And in the history of the short history of the live TV musical, you know, you've had things like Grease, where uh, Vanessa Hudgens gave the, did this amazing performance after her father had died, and you had Jennifer Hudson who was in Hairspray live. I don't think it had this level of star power or attention for the acting in these things. So it's like the TV musicals are getting ahead of the Emmys and how they manage to acknowledge work like this.
4: And what about Sarah Bareilles?
3: Sarah Bareilles, excuse me. Yeah, she is. She also is tremendous in it. I, I, again, not as flashy a role as Judas, but there are a yeah. few flashier roles than Judas. The thing that kind
4: of confuses me is that like it is a TV movie. It was a movie that was on TV. Like, I know that it was live, but like and the variety category feels like an inexact thing. I don't know. I feel like if they want to like they should just kind of like take the risk and submit themselves in the TV movie category and Mm -hmm. see if it works, you know, and that way you could you could cover the actors and everything like that. And then it would set a precedent.
2: The other thing, interesting thing is this is one of those rare shows or or properties where the title character could run a supporting because Judas is such is actually really arguably the star of the thing in in some ways, but you know, if this was like old school awards voter time. And I don't really know enough about the Emmy Academy to know whether we're still in old time or new time. But the the classic thing that would happen here is they'd fight to get everybody into the category, and then they'd give one nomination to Alice Cooper in supporting <laughs> with this fabulously diverse cast of people under 40. It would be like, Alice Cooper, ladies and gentlemen.
0: <laughs> Can we talk about how weird the outstanding... like Richard's kind of right, because the outstanding TV movie category last year was so weird, because you had stuff like... Dolly Parton's Curses of Many Colors colon Circle of Love, which feels like kind of close to Jesus Christ Superstar. And you have more traditional stuff like Wizard of Lies. But then you also have the Black Mirror episode San Junipero's in that category. So I don't know what's going on. Didn't that one win last year? Yeah, it won something. But yeah.
3: Yeah, a lot of the handicappers on Gold Derby this year have the Black Mirror episode uh, USS Callister kind of handicapped, I guess, figuring that San Junipero won last year. And that one was definitely flashy and got attention. You've also got The Tale, which we talked about out of Sundance, and it'll be on HBO. It's got Laura Dern in it. Fahrenheit 451 is another big one. But then after that, you really start hitting movies that don't have nearly the amount of attention or affection that Jesus Christ Superstar did. So you do wonder if it could sneak its way in there. Did anybody see Paterno?
4: No, I don't know if anybody saw Paterno, mm-hmm. to be honest. And I think that something about Superstar being put or potentially be you know trying to run in like a the sort of more respectable let's say category or the bigger category of the tv movie is that like this was a production that they kind of got right in a lot of ways like you know something that's been so eerie about a lot of these live tv musicals is that they didn't have an audience and so they were just would finish a song and then it would just be like dead silence and then they would move on to the next thing and it was just kind of creepy whereas this the jcs like really figured out how to still make it feel like a movie yeah but also have the live element to it. I think they should get kudos for kind of figuring out calculus there, because it was a, it was a good production. I mean, I think it is the best production that there's been yeah. that is
2: widely available, and that's kind of an advantage too. There's not like a perfect version of this anywhere. Like the movie is pretty bad. the The original Jesus Christ Superstar oh, yeah. movie. Yeah.
0: How dare you! That movie was made on gumption and definitely some methamphetamine. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
2: it's interesting. But it's
4: like I don't know.
2: I mean, this is sort of like a more, to me, successful execution of the of what Jesus Christ Superstar is supposed to be.
4: Yeah, and there was no Matthew Broad recovering creepily in the background. You know, like if there wasn't a Christmas story. You know, like they, they didn't do. There was. The, they didn't really like put a wrong foot. So I don't know.
3: Well, and you think about the live production aspects of it, and that's kind of why I do like the idea of it competing against things like the Oscars or the Super Bowl halftime show, because it's just a triumph of like getting all the gaffers in one place and and making sure all the sound works like there is something really incredibly technical about that that i mean you want to honor it there and uh, up against paterno why not both
0: um i just want to clarify that of course i do think this concert version is better than that crazy movie version but that movie version is like a really a lot of fun to watch if you think about how they made it and like how many drugs were consumed while making it um The other thing we should mention about the ever-shifting sort of Emmy categories is that there used to be a category for individual performance in a variety program. It was eliminated 10 years ago. That's how like Robin Williams, Whitney Houston, like, so they used to give it to like comedians and musicians for like stand-up specials or concerts. And so that's another option is like bring back the individual performance for a variety thing if we're going to see more live musicals, or I'm sure Netflix would love it for all of the stand-up specials that they put up. They would love to get like a John Mulaney or someone like that, you know, uh, an Emmy. Why not? So that's another option. But I, I don't know. Is, is the good idea to keep expanding the categories for the Emmys or to continue to condense and shrink? With all the television we have, it might be expansion is what we need, but I don't know.
3: Well, I just hope that the live musical trend continues and like if there's Emmys on the line, maybe they're inspired to do the Music Man Live that I've been asking for for years and years and no one seems to be listening. There's, There's a lot of options.
4: Well, that's what I'm saying. If you could make it, like, more prestigy, then, like, they'd really go harder on trying to, like, make the stuff good in the future, you know? Yeah. And if you're going to
2: expand anywhere, expand in an area where, you know, people are going there because uh, there's so much competition for people's time and attention that only this is something that only live broadcast television, you know, can really do. Or, or, or it's at least it, it's like sports. It's appointment viewing, which is the thing everybody's trying to figure out, as opposed to, like, I can
4: binge 400 episodes in a row on Netflix. You yeah. Know?
2: So that's a very smart place for the TV Academy. They should cut three other categories and add this one.
4: I'll tell you, I finally did watch Superstar, but like... It took me a while because I missed the live broadcast, and then like when I saw that it was on Hulu, I was like, okay. But the the incentive of watching a thing that had been live like later was kind of low. So yes, I think that's you're right, true. That they can, but they can capitalize on the liveness of it. You know, yeah. it's like it won't be the same if you just watch it the next day on Hulu. Like you have to kind of sit down at the um, on the couch at eight p.m. I think yeah, I think that there is there is a opportunity there.
0: Superstar was such a fun version of that because it was on Easter Sunday which you know I think is a time maybe when a lot of people are looking to do watch something with their families and it wasn't what I was starting to really dislike about the live musicals which was the twitter pylon hate watch mm-hmm. it was like this twitter joyous experience everyone being like oh my god john legend sarah borales like it was really really fun and uh, like uplifting not to be too like jesus christ superstar about it like it was really a lovely experience and i you know i, I want the tv musicals to just get better and better and better and uh, strive for repeating that experience of watching something we're all enjoying together you know on social media
3: well, I do think John Legend is setting a template for other huge stars to do it. I think he, I mean, he's one of the most famous people to do one of these live TV musicals. And he got, you know, unlike when Carrie Underwood d- did it and kind of got raked over the coals and sounded Music, like it was such a success for him that I hope, you know, Lady Gaga wants to do one or, who, you know, name your pop star.
2: Yeah. And you'll see one of the first things I asked him is like, was there a part of you that was like, why the hell do I need this in my life? You know, but but his answer, which is, I think is true, is like, come on, I've, I've played the Super Bowl. I've done all kinds of stuff, you know, Saturday Night Live. Like, this is what I do. Live performances are. is And so for him, it's great. I do think it's harder for people who are used to being in a controlled environment and, you know, rarely venture beyond live to tape. Um, so, But for a musician who, yeah, sure. who plays live concerts all the time, like, you know, you're yeah. on.
4: I think about um, Amy Adams uh, bravely doing Into the Woods in the Park, uh, Shakespeare in the Park, a few years, summers ago yeah. and having a really hard time, apparently, reportedly, because she was like, this is not like what I'm used to. I mean, doing something in the rain in Central Park is different than doing a big sound stage thing. Right. But still, you're right, Mike, that like so, so some people just aren't quite as accustomed. But these 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 big, you know, touring musicians like put them in like yeah. most of them can like act a little bit. Right. <laughs> Pink, you know, you know who's a good actress is Pink alicia moore when because she, she was in that movie thank you for sharing with mark oh, ruffalo yeah. and, Ralph Paul Trout, and she was really good in it she's obviously a, like a big stage performer with all of her acrobatics and singing whatever she, find something
3: for her i don't uh, know what it i would got be. it
2: marion librarian uh. <laughs> <laughs> nailed it there it is uh, with john legend as the music man
3: wait no i'm sorry mike i cast the music man live already it's limo miranda as uh harold hill oh, i think yeah, it's perfect right. and that's pink correct. can totally be marion the librarian okay
2: okay good <laughs> Now, let's talk briefly because EGOT, we talk about EGOT in this conversation yeah. as one must. There have been, I believe, 12. the Richard Rogers, Helen Hayes, Rita Moreno, John Gilgood, Audrey Hepburn, Marvin Hamlish, Jonathan Tunick, Mel Brooks, Mike Nichols, Wichby Goldberg, Scott Rudin, Robert Lopez. So, like, a pretty illustrious group. Yeah. Robert Lopez, one of the ones that I'm not as familiar with, is the shortest person to EGOT, shortest amount of time, 10 years, right?
3: <laughs> we don't know how tall he is.
2: If you look... <laughs> If you look,
0: I think Rita, Rita Moreno might be the shortest person to you get. If
2: you look at Legend's career, he won his first Grammy in like 2003 or something like that, right? But he won his most recent Grammy in 2016, and he won his Oscar in 2016, and he won his Tony in 2017. I think I'm anyway, it's all around it's been a short here. my point of time. is that. I think the correct way to judge this is the shortest amount of time between most recent Grammy and first of the last one, right? Right, right. So he will do it in two years if he if Jesus Christ Superstar wins Best Variety, whatever the hell they call it, right. because he's an executive producer. Because right. he was, and he's not going to presumably win an acting thing. But a lot of these people did not, you know, win. one of the, the strengths that he has is he's all over the place. The Tony is a producing Tony. The Grammys are for performances. Yeah. The Oscars for music. Um, so he's so like hyphenated that, um, that he has a, an edge over a lot of people who it's just like, all right, I. I performed in every one of these venues but still two freaking years
0: but that's what kind of what you want from an egot winner right is a multi-hyphenate like oh, scott yeah. rudin i'm like okay you've produced everything good job scott rudin but like the, okay no much respect to scott rudin but like but like john
3: legend he could do it all man i didn't realize he won best new artist would he be the first best new artist egot i'm just gonna say he is
4: i would i think so <laughs> <laughs> Unless Esperanza Spalding kind of comes out of nowhere and <laughs> wins a bunch of awards.
0: Al Pacino just needs a Grammy to EGOT, right, guys. Yeah. So you, you, you get can ready. You still
4: be best new artist at 78 <laughs> years old. He needs to do an audiobook book, obviously. But there should oh, just yeah. be one a year. That's where the actors win it. Yeah. 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 It had looked like Benj Pesak and Justin Paul, who wrote the lyrics for La La Land and the score and lyrics for Dear Evan Hansen, were going to EGOT within like 18 months or something. But then they didn't win a... An Emmy that they were potentially up for, so now that it's kind of knocked them out of orbit, and now it's like, well, who knows when the next big project is going to come around? So I feel like, like you need to capitalize on that momentum, and John Legend has yep. it. So yeah, you know, because it could be another however many years uh, until that cycle starts again for him.
0: I'm just going to drop two more pieces of Egot trivia on you for no good reason, please. Uh, <laughs> Trey Parker, Matt Stone, the South Park guys are only an Oscar away from an Egot, and weirdly enough, Julie Andrews is one award away from got, and that is the Tony award what? which is not Lord. what I would have called so wow. give That's her
3: crazy.
0: is there is there a lifetime achievement tone do they do like an honorary give
3: her give her, her honorary oh, yeah, Tony yeah but then some technical people th- say it doesn't count
2: exactly it has no. to be a competitive win yeah sorry there's uh, another list yeah. of people uh who have who have the uh non competitive yeah. ones I mean uh. my
4: personal you know um favorite or sort of the one I'm rooting for the most uh, who is one an Oscar away from an EGOT is our future governor Cynthia Nixon, or or at least oh. Mike and I are future governor, <laughs> not you guys. Sadly, can
3: she be a? Uh, a- uh, e- g- e- d- like a governor instead of an Oscar. This is what yeah. I'm trying to pull
0: off. Here. Oh, an eggt.
4: I could see John Legend becoming a governor somewhere too. Oh, so yeah, like yeah, 100%. Let, let's just like raise that bar. Um, but yeah, it looked like she might be at least in the running for it last year for A Quiet Passion, where she played Emily Dickinson. But then that movie just kind of didn't do anything awardsy. So so
3: she ran for she ran for governor instead.
4: Yeah, to, as a consolation prize. You
2: know what? Prize. I'm going big. I think John Legend could be our first PGOT. Oh, it's the president. <gasps> Grammy
3: Oscar 20.
2: 20- wow. <laughs> we need a better name for that.
3: Is that the way to set up our interview with John Legend? Just uh, introducing your future president in conversation with Mike Hogan?
2: Yeah. And let me just say, I, I really did think it was great. And I'm a huge Jesus Christ superstar dork. Like when I watched it, I actually sang along with a lot of it, like a huge nerd. Uh, in Al Pacino's voice, which is actually uh, my idea for his, uh, for his Grammy. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, hope you guys enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I'm thrilled to be here in the podcast studio with John Legend, a legend in his own time. So we're here to talk about a bunch of things, starting with this incredible Jesus Christ superstar that you that you starred in yeah. and you executive produced. yeah. And I wanted to just start actually by asking you how the whole thing came about and what does it mean in, the, in this context to be executive producer?
1: Well, the whole thing came about, NBC had been planning on doing it for quite a while and they started to assemble a team. And some of the team were people that I had worked with before. Uh, Mark Platt, we worked together on La La Land. Harvey Mason Jr., we had worked together on a few projects, and he was a music director. And Neil Maron and Craig Zidane, uh, they produced the Oscars that we sang Glory at. Right. And so it was like quite a few people that I had worked with before. And as they were starting to approach the casting decision, uh, I don't know if they thought of anybody else for Jesus, but they at some point came to me. They said, John, we'd love for you to play Jesus and come on and help us finish out the team and and make this production happen. And I looked at the team. I thought about the idea of me playing Jesus Christ himself. And uh, (laughs) and I was like, this sounds exciting. It sounds, it's something different for me. I've never done anything exactly like this before, but I thought it'd be a fun challenge and a fun project to take on. And so we joined the team and um if your question's about executive producing we helped think about the casting and think about you know how we wanted the production to go and we all as a team wanted that hybrid between you know concert and theater experience and television broadcast that i think we were able to pull off we wanted a really diverse cast that uh looked like america really and um we Just one of the best people we could possibly put together in, in, in one room to make this happen. And it happened. I was so yeah. happy with how it all came together.
2: Was there any part of you that's like, why do I need the chance of having something go wrong
1: in front of a live audience
2: <laughs> of like 9 million people on well, NBC?
1: I think... I think my whole life is about singing in front of a live audience and performing right. in front of a live audience. You know, I've played the Grammys and the Oscars and, you know, World Cup concerts. And right. Anything could go wrong on any of those moments. That's true. And so I, I'm used to the idea that, you know, I only have this one chance to deliver this performance and it's in front of millions of people and let's get it right. So I wasn't worried about that. I, I was just worried about making sure we as a team, because there's so many moving parts when you're doing a production this yeah. big with with so many great cast members and crew members and all these other things, for us to get it right, that was the biggest challenge.
2: Had you seen the other kind of live musicals? I had seen Network some of them. Yeah. I would
1: seen The Wiz. I had seen uh, Grease. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I I was entertained by them, and I thought they, they did a great job, but we approached this show a little differently than the, the other shows in that we made... Um, we had so much emphasis on the live aspect of it, I think yeah. more so than the other shows had done. And and we had live musicians there and they were all in the room with us. And it wasn't kind of a canned studio experience like a lot of the other ones felt like. Yeah. And uh, I think that's part of what made this one so dynamic. And it just felt more connected, I think, to the audience and to the people.
2: The New York Times review of it was mm-hmm. very, very positive. Yeah, and just wanted to quote it, just because because these things have been a little hit and miss, and they're yeah. and it's challenging, right? It's it like is not a necessarily something that has been fully cracked. Like people yeah. like them, it seems to be at a time when it's hard to get people to like congregate around a live yeah. thing, like it's a thing. Yeah. But the Times called it a conceptual and artistic triumph, genuinely thrilling, may have finally justified the recent live musical fad on <laughs> network TV. Yes, and also as thoughtful and challenging as the show, meaning Jesus Christ Superstar has ever been. And so, I mean, that's pretty, you know, and the Times will let you know if they're not happy.
1: I know. And uh Andrew Lloyd <laughs> Webber, he emailed me afterwards. He was like, I've never gotten this good of a review in the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> so what about this the show?
2: Because it's a weird show. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I be honest and say it's a weird show in a weird role, honestly? Yeah, like- it's,
1: it's really interesting because he's the titular character, but in a lot of ways, there's a lot happening around him, and Judas, in a lot of ways, has actually more more dynamic songs and uh, has a bigger role in a lot of ways because it's about Judas and his relationship with Jesus as much as it's about Jesus. And it was controversial when it came out. Well, first, it started out as an album, which I think a lot of people um, who are younger probably didn't know that it started yeah. out as an album. Yeah. Rather than a full theater production. What
2: was it Ian Gilliam from Deep Purple, right? Players yeah. sang the Jesus part yeah.
1: on the album. Yeah. Yeah, and when Andrew and Tim wrote this music, they were like, they were kids. They were like 19, 20 years old. They, yeah. were, they were like so young, and they were making a concept album, essentially the first rock opera, and uh, eventually it became a show, and they didn't even like the early productions of the show as much because they didn't kind of crack the code on what it was supposed to look like for a while. But eventually, I think this might be their favorite production of it, yeah. uh, this version of it. And they were so happy with how it was received. But it was so fun for us to do. I mean, yeah, we just had fun putting it together. And the team was so good. I think part of what made it work was we cast with a lot of really great Broadway actors who were true yeah. professionals and yeah. great performers in their own right. And we didn't over rely on getting famous more well-known pop singers like myself right (laughs) yeah yeah yeah
2: it was it was you and alice cooper yeah and sarah and And sarah's kind of a hybrid yes yeah Yeah.
1: sarah's a hybrid because she's been on broadway for the past couple years doing waitress but she's of course started out more as a pop singer songwriter and then we had just all these awesome, you know, Broadway performers like Brandon Victor Dixon, and
2: well, you mentioned the the, the diversity question, yeah. right? Because one of the slightly weird things about the original movie mm-hmm. is you've got a really white Jesus and a black Judas, yeah. Like, did that is that something you guys thought about or talked about or anything? Well,
1: I think part of our goal was to make it. Kind of blindly racially diverse, like in a yes. sense where we didn't try to align certain characters to certain yeah. races, and which is better. Yeah, I, <laughs> I thought it, I thought it was better that we just kind of made it open, but we were intentionally inclusive as well. So yeah. it wasn't like one character had to be black and one character had to be white, one character had to be this and one character had to be that. But we wanted it to be openly inclusive, and so we literally had all the colors of the rainbow in the cast. And I think it was better for it because we did. It, it was just it was just a cool experience to work with such a great group of people and all really talented in their own right. Are
2: you uh, religious yourself?
1: I'm not. I, I grew up in a very religious home. Uh, I grew up in my family was Pentecostal Christian. Mm. And my grandfather was our pastor. My grandmother was the church organist. My mother was the choir director. My dad taught Sunday school and played the drums. I have uncles who are ministers and pastors and bishops, and and I was completely born and bred into this tradition, though I'm not particularly religious now, but I, I, I grew up learning about Jesus and learning about his teachings, and, and so I felt very close to the material when it came time to get ready for, for the role. Did
2: they all watch the, watch the show? They all
1: watched it. A lot of them yeah. came to New York. My mother came. My a couple of my aunts came and a few cousins came we had a good time yeah
2: they didn't think it was sacrilegious or anything
1: no they loved it my mom was like talking like she was at church she's like hallelujah <laughs> amen that's great that's good that's good <laughs> yes they felt they felt good i mean and obviously it's had some controversy over the years because some people did see it as kind of blasphemous or sacrilegious to kind of reinterpret jesus's last days in that way and of course the the writers took some liberties, you know, with interpreting how Jesus might have interacted with Judas and how he might have interacted with Mary Magdalene, which is somewhat yeah. controversial as right. well. Kind of insinuating that they may have, may have had a romantic relationship. All of that was controversial when it was uh, first uh, introduced to the public back back in the seventies.
2: And there's interesting, like, political dimensions to it. Like, in a yeah. weird way, watching it, I was like, "Oh, Judas is kind of a Bernie
1: bro." Yeah. <laughs> <And I> guess, <laughs> He's
2: like just yeah, like an like, ideological left guy. Yeah,
1: he's like, Jesus, like, you need to focus more on the poor. You need right. to, uh, why are you wasting your time, you know, with Mary and you need to be focused on your mission. But then in other ways, he was saying you need to be more politically judicious because you're going to get us in trouble. You know, right. as, as Jesus is going through the temple and upsetting, the, you know, the status quo, he's saying maybe you need to be more careful about how you express your uh, views on, you know, the upheaval of the status quo. So I think a lot of it in the, in, the, in the story is portrayed as a kind of an ideological dispute and a dispute on tactics as well mm-hmm. uh, of how, how to conduct the revolution. And so that's a lot of the drama and the interplay between Judas and Jesus is that, is that ongoing dispute about how to best achieve what I think are similar goals uh, that they have.
2: And I know you were you had some involvement in the Obama campaign. You sure, did a concert. I remember mm-hmm. seeing you at at some of the you know White House correspondence dinners yeah. and the after parties and stuff. Yeah, are you in, Are you involved in politics these days? Or yeah, you, all the yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you have a bunch of causes. You have yeah, a lot of great. I'm very activism. involved in politics.
1: I get involved in a lot of local elections too because. Um, A lot of the change that I want to see, particularly in the criminal justice system and in our education system, a lot of it happens on the local and the state level. So you have to care about the school board elections and and the district attorney elections and and the gubernatorial elections and, uh, you know, all of that stuff from the local to the federal and so I get involved in all that stuff and, and think about it all the time.
2: Are you optimistic these days? or uh, Nobody is. It would be amazing if you were, but I'm curious. I'm,
1: I'm kind of, by disposition, optimistic. That's why I asked. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I, I go back and forth. I was saying this the other day. Uh, I go back and forth between excitement that so many people are motivated to get out on the streets. And there are kids out in the street right now walking out of school uh, That's right. s- yes, talking about today. gun violence mm-hmm. here in New York. They're in D.C. They're all over the country doing that. And I'm excited by that. I'm optimistic because so many more people are running for office in their communities. A lot more women, a lot more minorities are running for office around the country. And, and a lot of people who are more progressive are, are are running for office. And so that makes me excited. And obviously it's a reaction to, you know, the awful man that's in the White House. So the other side, of course, is there's an awful man in the White House. Yes. And he has yeah. the power to to visit harm and and despair upon a lot of people. So whenever he makes a decision not to allow refugees from Syria, that hurts a lot of people. Whenever he decides to deport more people and break up more families, that hurts a lot of people too. So he's visiting destruction and harm and despair upon so many people by the choices that he's making. So that's what makes me sad and that's mm-hmm. what makes me feel a sense of urgency. And also his attacks on the press and the attacks on truth itself uh, are very worrying for me too because I, I don't know if we're going to completely recover from the damage that he's doing to the national discourse and to the press and to families and to the truth. All these things are under attack. Yeah. Um, and the permission that he's given to... Confederate sympathizers, Nazi sympathizers, just hateful people to feel like they're validated in their views by literally the the leader of the free world. That's incredibly concerning to me. Yeah. So it's hard to think about being optimistic, but you know, there are moments when I'm like, oh, maybe we'll recover from this. Maybe this will motivate people. Maybe this will make us uh, realize that we can't take... Our democracy and our freedom for granted and uh and we'll all get out there and and, and make make a difference but it's going to be tough to recover from this he's doing real damage to real people
2: yeah yeah do you have a lot of activity in the, in the lead up to the midterms yeah uh, no, i'm going to yeah. do
1: quite a bit district attorney elections we're going to get involved in that um, yeah because I, I think that's a big big thing if we want to see justice done around the country when it comes to incarceration rates and all these other things that we care about, mm-hmm. we're getting involved in bail reform, which is another issue. When it comes to mass incarceration, we're going to put out some creative work that we've been doing on on ending money bail, um, and mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't think about this because we're just so used to it. You know, if you get arrested, um, the judge sets bail. We're used to seeing it on Law and Order or whatever, mm-hmm. and you know, it's maybe a thousand dollars or twenty five hundred bucks or five thousand dollars, depending on. You know, whatever the judge thinks. And uh, what we don't realize is it basically means if you're poor, you stay in jail. And if if you have money, then you get out. Right. And so it's like two different systems based on your income. Yeah. And it's not fair. It's not right. And it contributes to millions of people being in jail when they don't need to be. And so we want to end money bail. Period. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it shouldn't exist. Uh, there shouldn't be a system where if you're poor, you have to stay in jail. And if you have money, you can get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want it to be solely based on whether you're a risk to the community or a risk of flight. Otherwise, if, if you're deemed to not be a, a, a big risk, then you should be free until you're actually convicted of the crime. Right. And so that's one of the things we're working on where uh, there's a, a law that is coming up for vote this year in California that we're going to uh, advocate on behalf of. And then we'll get involved in some of the congressional elections as well.
2: That's great. Well, one of the things that blows my mind about you is just how much stuff you have going at all times. (laughs) It's kind of a segue into... I got to talk about the EGOT situation. Okay, there's only <laughs> yes. twelve EGOTs in the world. Are there only twelve? I didn't there's know there 12, was twelve. Like who got, came about it the hard way? There's there's more if you include sort of honorary. Oh, uh, okay. Things and, I don't, and maybe it's not the hard way, but the the, the strict way of like in competition they won okay. it for. Okay. The person who did it fastest did it in ten years. Okay. Theoretically, you would be doing it in 12 years because you got 10 Grammys. Your first one's 2006, right? Yes.
1: Well, that was my first album, so that was the first time I was eligible for a Grammy. Right. It was 06.
2: But on the other hand, I would argue if I were in the position of your publicist who's sitting nearby, <laughs> that you, if you get an Emmy this year, uh-huh. which you could either for acting or for executive producing, right? hmm you could be it could be two years because you won your last Grammy two years ago, right? In <laughs> That's a way of looking at I'm it. I'm here for you
1: guys. <laughs> that is a way of looking at it. I don't know if I, that one flies, but <laughs> hey, I'll take it.
2: So, so all right, so you got a Tony for, for um, Jitney, Jitney, yes. August Wilson play, amazing yes. play, and which got another you know incredible New York Times review, which is yeah. all that really matters in Broadway, right? That yeah, it's, I mean, deal. New
1: York Times is critical for any any Broadway show, and we, we were happy to be part of the team that helped put this revival of Jitney back uh, uh, back in theaters and the first time it was actually on Broadway and that was the last August Wilson play of that series that hadn't that right? been I on Broadway. it had never been on Broadway It before. had never okay. been on Broadway yeah. before um, right. and that was the last one that had, uh, hadn't had been there and so we were able to help get it on Broadway and, and it won Best Revival.
2: And then of course, this is we talk a lot about the Oscars on this podcast, but Glory and... Yes. Uh, and then La La Land, you were there. You were part of that whole yes, and scenario. We almost won an worship. Oscar for that too. <laughs> so, first of all, I gotta ask you about that. What, what, what was your feeling? How, what was that like? That experience of seeing that envelope. First of all, open I had so closed. much
1: fun. I had so much fun the whole season, the whole award season. Uh, La La Land did wonderfully throughout the award season, and we were so proud to be part of the film, and. Honestly, I was happy for Moonlight. I, I yeah. loved Moonlight. Yeah. Um, I love Barry and his work, uh, Barry Jenkins and Mahershala and all the great cast that they had. And I was just truly happy for them once yeah. they once it was determined that they won. <laughs> but uh, before that, I was just utterly confused. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? Because I saw the producer, one of the producers walk out onto the, uh, one of the show producers walk out onto the stage and, And my original thought was, oh, um, well, they must have run out of time and, uh, you know, they played us off or something and they were like, okay, we're done. Yeah. Uh, So that was my original thought. And then people were starting to whisper, "Uh, oh, Moonlight won, Moonlight won. And then somebody said Moonlight uh, was supposed to be up here. And I was like, did we both win? I didn't understand. Yeah. Uh, And then eventually it became clear what happened. And I felt bad for Moonlight because, you know... They actually won, they got the most votes, and they should have had that moment to themselves, yeah, and I know didn't. Barry
2: Jenkins has said that that was, that was the annoying part of that thing. yeah, it's like, like they that should have not coming back yeah
1: they they'll never have that moment of hearing their name and and being able to run up as we did <laughs> <You're right. laughs> uh, and celebrate it in in kind of an unvarnished way uh un, unfettered by you know confusion and controversy uh but Either way, I had such a thrilling experience being part of La La Land. Everybody
2: acquitted themselves very well in that. Yeah, I thought our scenario. our folks from
1: from La La Land did uh, and handled it graciously, and then Barry yeah. handled it graciously as well. Yeah, and uh, like I said, they made a beautiful film that was very deserving of the of the award as well. So, what's the most
2: fun night? The Grammys, the Tonys, the Oscars, the Globes. The, you've got we've, you've got them all. VMAs, the, the BETs. What's the most What's the most fun?
1: That's a good question.
2: Because you and Chrissy, I've seen you guys out.
1: You guys you know, have fun. We have fun. We love, especially during the Obama years, we loved White House correspondence Day. I know you did. We really enjoyed <laughs> that. And we loved the humor of it all. We loved uh, the kind of nexus of our worlds, politics and entertainment, because we're both very into both. Yeah, I think that's our favorite thing we would go to. And now, you know, Trump has kind of spoiled it uh, by just... Just you're, being you're not going Just being year, the worst you? and also just not being a, even a good enough sport to go to the event himself. Would would uh, you go if he if he went? I don't know. I, I don't know if I ever want to be around him at this point. Like I really think he's just an awful dude.
2: Were uh, you like, there the night that Obama and Seth Myers just? I wasn't. Chrissy one? was there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Chrissy was there and uh she enjoyed it and <laughs> we didn't realize we might have spurred him to run for president yeah, uh, by that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Like, the, the the animus he felt toward the establishment helped propel him <laughs> to running for president and ruin all of our lives.
2: <laughs> so, and you got another, you guys have another baby
1: coming? Yeah, out. very soon, like in a month or so.
2: Do you guys have, like, playdates with other, like, uh, awesome celebrity couples? Well, we this had a birthday offensive. party for Luna, and we had a okay. few
1: um, friends over with their kids uh, or, around the same age, and... uh uh, it's it's cool. It's it's kind of a new world to be in the the whole play date world. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know, like if our kids get that they're supposed to hang out and do fun things together. Luna's not like she's not exactly sure how to play with other kids yet. I think yeah. she'll figure it out then.
2: So, do you think you'll? Again, because you you really do everything, which is amazing. But do you think that TV? You think you'll do more TV stuff now, or is it just kind of like do opportunities arise and you you well, take them as they we come? We just
1: we we actively pursue creative relationships with writers and other people in the creative community, and we judge each project based on whether or not we're excited about it and whether or not it aligns with our values and, and the kinds of kinds of uh, messages and and quality we're trying to put out. My production company is called Get Lifted Film Company, and we're actively looking at projects all the time, uh, film and TV and theater. And so it's just a matter of, are we excited about this? Is it something content-wise that we can get behind? Is it something that I personally will want to go out and talk about in interviews and things like that? And is it the kind of creative people that we want to work with? And we evaluate each project that way. Some of them come to us. Some of them we more actively cultivate relationships with creatives and, like, writers and filmmakers. And then eventually, you know, the development process is, it's a tough thing because you'll have all these ideas and all these kind of things on your slate and really only a small percentage actually you know, make it to the air, make it to right. the public. Um, but you have to go through that process with each of them and, and flesh them out and see if you can make them into something beautiful and special. And when it finally comes together, when all the, all the stars align, all the moving parts come together in the right way, then you have something like Jesus Christ Superstar that just, yeah it works and people are happy and they love it and you feel good about it. And that's when, as a team, you feel like, wow, we did our jobs, we did the right thing and we made it happen.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing it.
1: My pleasure.
3: does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks as always for listening. Please find us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review. Uh, coming up in the next few weeks, we're going to be sending Richard off to Cannes. So we're going to be getting lots of details from France. Uh, hopefully some fashion reports about Kate Blanchett. And there's movies there too, right?
4: Yeah, um, I'm really excited to fly to France to see a Lars Buncher movie about a serial killer.
3: <laughs> it's spring it's the perfect time of year for it yeah you can find us all at bandyfair.com we're all on twitter at little gold men and on our own i am at katie rich mike
2: mike underscore hogan and richard rylas
3: and joanna joe wrote this this episode was edited and produced by danielle roth and this week's award for the best description of the experience of unfollowing kanye west goes to joanna robinson
0: it was like this twitter joyous experience